Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Some of you remember growing up maybe singing a song that uh, I don't remember singing in worship in a long time, but the opening lyrics of the song were, Jesus, meek and gentle, Son of God most high. Don't you love the thought of the mild, gentle, meek Jesus? How often do we portray him as the one who's with children and how gentle he had to be as they came to him and he gave that great teaching of, of such or the kingdom of God? How often do we think of him as being gentle and mild with those who were downtrodden in society and lifting them up simply by the way he encouraged them no matter what their situation or station in life happened to be? It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But if all we ever think of Jesus is just this gentle, meek, mild person, we have missed the full picture in the New Testament that portrays him, yes, at times as meek and mild and gentle, but also as the one who pronounced woes upon the Pharisees, the one who made a whip of cords and went into the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and made sure that they knew the truth was being proclaimed there. And it's even said that zeal for my house has consumed me. And we also miss the way he's portrayed in Revelation chapter 14. This morning, we're continuing a series of lessons that we began a couple of Sundays ago. On Sunday mornings, we're thinking about those places in that final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where the text tells us to behold something, to look at something. And the phrase that I used a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to use it a couple of times this lesson, I'm sure, is that these are the things that, that should arrest our attention. John, writing that vision, is, is constantly told to look, to behold something. And as we mentioned, as we began this series a couple of weeks ago, they are the biggest themes in Scripture. The Almighty God a couple of weeks ago, Christ being the Lamb last week, and that's going to come into play this week as well. But our scripture reading only went through the first five verses of Revelation 14. And you may have thought that the title for this morning's lesson, Behold Christ the Conqueror, didn't make a whole lot of sense with the scripture reading. What we're going to think about this morning is this vision, the first verses of Revelation 14. But we're going to go on into the text somewhat. Because twice in Revelation 14, we're told to behold something. And when you piece those two times together, you get a picture of Christ that is beautiful. We're going to think this morning in this text about where he was that we sang about this morning, if you noticed. We're going to think about who he was. We're going to think about who he was with. And then we're going to think about what he was doing. 
First of all, this morning, consider with me where he was. After our key word for this whole series is found in Revelation 14 and verse 1, Behold, we're told that John is seeing this vision occur on Mount Zion. Now, if you're reading through the book of Revelation, just straight through, if you were to begin in chapter 1 and read all the way through Revelation, this is the first time in the book of Revelation that Zion or Mount Zion is mentioned in that book of the Bible. But Bible students know that that phrase means a lot. After all, don't we sing songs like we have this morning on Zion's glorious summit stood or we're marching to Zion. We sing those songs. What in the world are we talking about? When we sing that and what is brought in here to this vision in Revelation 14, where John looks and behold on Mount Zion, Zion is an important place in biblical history as a physical place. It was part of the city of Jerusalem, at least at first it was part of it, but it carried more interest than just being part of that city. Not long after he became the king of Israel, David actually captured that place that was adjacent to the city of Jerusalem. And it was an elevated place in or beside the city. In fact, back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, you read these words. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And later in that same chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 5, or excuse me, chapter 5 and verse 9, we read, And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. So there's a connection back in the minds of these original readers, back to this place that David took, but it became his home. And as time goes on, the place known as Zion, the elevated place known as Zion, And the place name of Jerusalem became used interchangeably. In fact, one example of that is found in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 21, where Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion, she wages her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. And so the Jews began to use these terms interchangeably. But that part of Jerusalem, that elevated place in Jerusalem, was more than just something that David overtook. It was more than just something that was used interchangeably with the name place of Jerusalem because it was the place where David selected and then Solomon built the temple. It was the place that became the holiest of all places to the Jews in the Old Testament times. Because where the temple was, was where God dwelt among his people. Where the temple was, was where the priests went to make those sacrifices. And so it becomes a place of God's presence. It becomes a place of God's power and of praising God and where God meets his people and where sacrifices are made. And with that in mind, the Old Testament uh, prophets and poets began to use the term Zion to speak of themes like hope and redemption. For example, Psalm 14 and verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Isaiah 59 and verse 20 prophesied, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And so the Old Testament writers began to use that place name as a place where God's presence is, but then to fill in the theme of hope and redemption 
because of God's presence. And the New Testament writers pick up on the same theme. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, you see that. In Hebrews 12, beginning of verse 22, the writer there says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And so with all that as background then, you come to this vision in Revelation chapter 14, and the question becomes, why would this be the place? Is it that John was seeing a vision that was placed, if you will, at the temple on that elevated part of Jerusalem? Or is John seeing a vision of the heavenly Jerusalem where God dwells now in the Christian dispensation? And the answer is, it doesn't really matter. Because the point is the same, whether the vision is seen in that elevated place in Jerusalem where the temple was, or if the vision is supposed to be some heavenly dwelling, the point is exactly the same. The point is, it's the place where God is, where God dwells, and where God meets His people. It's setting up a vision of something happening in the powerful presence of God. Where He was, was Mount Zion. But number two, consider who he was. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Wait, somebody says. I thought the title of this lesson was The Conqueror. Why are we talking about a Lamb? Did you notice we're not talking about a Lamb? What does the text say? On Mount Zion was the Lamb. If you're in the book of Revelation, turn back a handful of pages to Revelation chapter 5. I'll meet you there in just a moment to read several verses. But as you're turning back to Revelation chapter 5, let me remind you that in chapter 4 of Revelation, we're given that glimpse into the, the throne room of God. And God himself is on the throne. It's that picture we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in our study about light and power and all those things that are found there. But when Revelation 4 comes to an end and Revelation 5 begins, the the scene is still there in the throne room of God. But the one who takes center stage, if you please, that changes. In fact, in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, a scroll is seen in God's hand. And the question is asked in verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one can be found. And so in verse 4, John weeps because of that. He he wants to see what's in this scroll. He wants to know what's going on as far as this this revelation goes. And then we're told in Revelation 5 and verse 5 that one of the elders told John that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this elder says the lion is there. Are you in Revelation chapter 5? Let's read together beginning in verse 6 through verse 14. And notice the terminology. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion, a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before, not the lion, the lamb, each holding a harp. 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is not the lion. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to not the lion, the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Think about that scene. I know it was a long reading. And we're not trying to understand every detail of it this morning. It's not our lesson, the, the idea of our lesson to try to unpack everything that's happening there. But what I want you to notice is that simple contrast. This elder in Revelation 5 and verse 5 says, The Lion of Judah, that's who you're getting ready to see. And then as the one takes the center stage, it's not a lion, it's the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain, but now is standing in the throne room of God. It is Jesus but he had seven horns, perfect power, perfect rule. He had seven eyes, perfect wisdom. This is, this is no ordinary lamb. This is the one we sing about when we sing, Oh, Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God. I love the holy Lamb of God. And that's the one in Revelation chapter 14 who is on Mount Zion. Put those two things together. Mount Zion is the place where God meets his people and where the glory of God goes forth and shines forth. And and the lamb is there. Our attention needs to be arrested constantly with the glorious fact that Jesus is the lamb and where he is, we meet God. And where he is, God is glorified. That's what John sees as he looks up. At this place, this vision of Mount Zion and sees a lamb. But think for a moment. Some of this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. When you think about the fact this lamb is pictured as being slain. We're talking this morning about Christ the conqueror. And yet it's a lamb who's been slain. Of course it doesn't make sense to human ears. But I want to remind all of us of something. That our young people who are studying for Bible Bowl and Lads to Leaders have seen constantly especially as they've studied the opening chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. Do you remember how often in that book, Paul would constantly say, basically, the wisdom of men is foolishness to God? That what God does doesn't often make sense. One of those places, maybe the most famous, is 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 23, where Paul said, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. And folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul was saying in those verses that even not that long after Jesus ascended back into heaven, and the church was beginning to spread, that the message of a crucified Savior did not make a whole lot of sense to many people. To the Jews it didn't make sense. To the Gentiles it for sure didn't make sense. It was a a stumbling block. They couldn't get their mind around it. And humanly speaking, 
Even today it may not make a whole lot of sense. But Paul said that if God could do anything foolish, which he can't, but if God could do anything foolish, it would still be wiser than anything you or I could ever think of. And why? Because the lamb that was slain is standing. He overcame what you and I can't. Was the lamb slain? Oh, yeah. But he didn't stay that way. He's standing in the presence of God. That's who he was. We've noticed where he was. We've noticed who he was. Let's consider who he was with. The lamb in Revelation 14 was not alone. As John saw on Mount Zion, the lamb, and now with him, 144,000 who had the name and the, uh, and his name and the father's name written on their foreheads. Now, of course, that number, 144,000, has been bandied about throughout the years, all kinds of discussions about what it means. We simply have to remember the book of Revelation is written in signs and symbols, and some of those signs and symbols are numerical, and we may not fully understand all of them, but you take 144 and a little math, and you simply end up with 12 times 12 times 1,000. Twelve was the number to them of the divine number, three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the earthly number, four, four winds, four points on a compass, four corners of the earth, and so on and so forth. You put those together and you have the completion of God and mankind. Ten was their perfect number, a number of completion. And you simply multiply that over and over and over again to get thousands. So it's it's massive completion. That's all it means. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, you had seen the same thing. If you go back to that chapter, you've already seen 144,000. People have made all kinds of stuff about what that means. Who are these 144,000? Am I in it? Are you in it? Is the number closed? And the, the point of it is, if they would just read a handful more verses, you get the answer to the question. Because in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, after John had talked about seeing 144,000, he says in verse 9, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages. That's what John sees now in Revelation chapter 14. It is a massive crowd. But folks, listen to me very carefully. If we get caught up on the number, we've missed the point. John isn't so much concerned about counting noses in Revelation chapter 14. He is using signs and symbols to try to relay to us what he is seeing in this overwhelming vision. What he is trying to get us to see is this massive number, yes. But every one of them, he says, has the name of the Lamb and of the Father on their foreheads. And while it may seem strange to us in some ways, if you go back to Revelation 7, you get the point again. Revelation 7, down in verse 3, the text says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. While the sealing is on their forehead, we can argue why, but the indication of sealing is simply to indicate ownership or servanthood. They belong to God. They belong to the Lamb. The judgment of God in the early part of Revelation is put on hold for a moment, if you will, so these faithful can be sealed. And now in Revelation 14, where are they? They're in the presence of God and they're with the Lamb. But how did they get there? Well, the text tells us they're sealed. But how are they sealed? Well, there's three things mentioned in 
Revelation 14. First, they are redeemed. The end of verse 3 says, they have been redeemed from the earth. The middle of verse 4 says, they have been redeemed from mankind. Redemption implies that someone else does the work of buying someone back. That's all the word means. But the emphasis there is that someone else does the work. You might think, for example, in the Old Testament of the prophet Hosea, who had to go buy his own wife back. Her name was Gomer, poor thing. Sorry. I'm not sure what it but no. That's the, but anyway, he had to go buy his own wife back. He had to do the work. That's the idea of the word redemption. That they were redeemed from the earth. They were redeemed from, man, from, from all of mankind. God did the work. And so someone says, see, there's proof. We don't have to do anything. Oh, there's more in this text, isn't there? They had to do something too. The text says they avoided defilement. Specifically, verse 4 says, they did not defile themselves with women. In other words, we might just simply say they were pure. There are different ways of interpreting that passage of they did not defile themselves with women. And the reason I went to the prophet Hosea a moment ago is probably that's what's in mind here. Is this concept you see constantly in the Old Testament of God's people going after, and if you read from the King James, you know there's other language there, other nations and other nations' practices that were often grotesque and immoral and awful. It probably here does not actually mean a sexual thing. It probably means more of simply a going after, and in their case, Roman practices that were evil and sinful and wrong. But whichever is in view, The vision is simply that they did not do those things. They avoided defiling their souls. That they were pure as God's people. So yes, there is something we must do in order to have that seal on our forehead. In other words, in other words, to be belong to God. And then John says they were filled with truth. Verse five states in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. Among other things listed in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 is the fact that liars will find their place in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. But I think the key to this phrase is not just they don't tell lies, but that they're blameless. You can't hold things against them. They are filled with truth. It's not they never make mistakes, but they are filled with what's true. You look at that short list of three things. They were redeemed. They avoided defilement. They were filled with all truth. It's amazing how the text summarizes it for us. One of the most beautiful phrases, as we read the text together a little while ago, did you notice it in the middle of verse 4? You have a beautiful description. In the presence, excuse me, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. How beautiful is that? It is these who follow the Lamb Wherever he goes, put those things together. Where were they? Mount Zion, God's presence, God's protection, where God is glorified and praised. Who's there? The Lamb. The one who brings us to God's presence. The one who where he is, God is always glorified. Who's with him? 144,000, a great multitude of people who have been redeemed, but have also lived in such a way that they have that belonging, that servanthood of God. And if you were reading this in the first century, and earlier in the same letter you had read, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Don't you think the phrase, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, would have meant a whole lot to you? 
Because what if following the Lamb took you to your death? What if following the Lamb meant I am ostracized from society completely? It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Is your attention arrested by Jesus yet? Are you focusing on Him? Are you amazed at the Lamb? Are you wanting to be with Him? Well, there's one more thing. It's later in the same chapter. Because the picture changes in Revelation 14 from a Lamb of God. And it's really what gives us our our title this morning. And if you look down at verses 14 through 16, we're going to notice in the fourth place what He does. Read with me beginning in verse 14. Then I looked, and here's our word again. Behold, a white cloud, and seed on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. What does he do? He judges and he judges the whole earth. Some suggest this text is talking about judging the Roman Empire. Others, and I tend to agree, suggest he's talking about the final judgment, the end of time. But whichever is the case, we need to understand and appreciate the fact that Jesus is the judge of all mankind. And you see this picture of a, of a sickle going in and, and reaping. And your mind may go back to Matthew chapter 13. Not the parable of the sower, but the parable that follows that one. The parable of the wheat and the tares. Where those things grew up together. The wheat and the tares looked so much alike that the people were like... What? What do you want us to do? Go in and take out the tares first? And what was the response? No, you let them grow together. And at the end of time, I will go in and separate the wheat from the chaff or the wheat from the tares. Gather the wheat first, the weeds first, excuse me, and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. How will Jesus know who are wheat and who are tares? It goes back to two facts about him. One is found in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the others found, we were told more than once, he knew the thoughts of men. Jesus is the judge of the whole earth. And he will come conquering Because he judges the whole earth. But put the pictures together. The earth thought they had won. Because they put the lamb to death. But oh death where is your victory? Oh death where is your sting? And it's why you and I can triumphantly sing songs like up from the grave he arose with a mighty what? Triumph o'er his foes. He arose what? A what? A victory. Say it. He arose what? He arose what? A victor from the dead domain. And he what? Lives, reigns forever for the saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Praise God, hallelujah, Christ arose.
He defeated what you and I could not defeat. And because of that, when he returns, it's as if he'll be taking a sickle over the whole earth, judging mankind, taking the good from the bad. He's the one who's able to separate the sheep from the goats. Matthew chapter 25. He knows. He knows everything about you and I. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words. He knows our deeds. And no matter what we might be doing, no matter how we might be living, if we are with him, we are in the presence of God. We are with the one who, who was slain, but who stands and where he is, God is glorified. And if we are with him, he has redeemed us from all mankind because we are striving to please him. Folks, don't you want to be with Christ the conqueror? I do. I do. Behold. The lamb. Of God. Slain from the foundation of the world. For sinners crucified. Oh, holy sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb. And if I may say one more thing. What makes everything we said this morning even more powerful is that he was slain for you and for me. Has he arrested your attention this morning enough that you're willing to be washed in the blood of the Lamb? Brother or sister in Christ, has he arrested your attention enough this morning that you're willing to say, I haven't been faithful, but I want to be faithful unto death so that the Lamb is the one who gives me the crown of life. As we sing a song in just a moment, what will your answer be? Will you behold him and come to him as we stand and sing to encourage you?